Good morning to each of you this morning. Greetings in the name of Jesus. The one through which we have access to God. We um, rejoice in the relationship we have with our in the family of God. I've been puzzling a little bit in relation to this Sunday school lesson. And also, even like the last song we just sang. Is it too idealistic to believe that if every one of us practiced the teachings of Scripture like Jesus laid it out in loving each other, loving our brothers and sisters, that there would be any church issues, any church problems, any congregational issues? You say, oh, that's idealistic. But I think we need to believe that that's possible because Jesus said, I give you this new commandment and I want you to love the way I loved you. And so putting that into shoe leather, leather would mean that when there is difficulties, frustrations, whatever it is, somewhere, someone is failing of the love of God, love of Christ in their hearts. I give that not in discouragement, but as a challenge for us in a positive way. Always to look at ourselves, always understand you know, what that is, what's going on in our hearts so that God can bless us. I enjoy brotherhood. I enjoy the relationship we have in our brotherhood. And I always also look forward to new growth in areas of challenge yet to be discovered. Welcome to the visitors here this morning. Glad you could be here with us. Good to have Regals back again with us as well. Just for uh, prayer, uh, we plan to be in Payette for revival meetings beginning on Thursday through Sunday, so I ask you to pray for us in that work. I'm going to preach a subject. I'll preach on a subject this morning that I realize I haven't preached on for many years, probably to my shame. But um, it's been on my heart for a while already. I would like to uh, this morning look at the doctrinal teaching on God's order of headship and the headship covering. Um, the title would be "What the Bible Teaches About the Order of Headship." Now, this is not a popular subject in general, not only in the world, but also in Christianity. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what the Bible teaches, but we'd like to just simply this morning look into the Scriptures together, endeavor to understand what God has to say about this. While the practice of a head covering for women was... I say was, almost universally practiced by Christians and pagan societies throughout history. It has basically been misunderstood and lost, especially in Western civilization, beginning at about the 1920s. If you go back and look at history, that's about where the, the, the shift happened. 
right at the end of World, uh, World War One or during World War One. Before that, and even in today's world, many places in the world, it's not simply a religious symbol, but also is is still practiced by, as I said, pagan societies, and also various religious groups, of course. Now, this is not simply a shift of cultural practice, but I believe it's related to the rise of the liberal feminist movements beginning about the in the 1920s, and um, in that era, and has only strengthened here, especially in Western culture, ever since then. This is not... Um, I would like to say this. So the changes in the last hundred years is more because of a moving away from a scriptural understanding of God's order of headship rather than just dropping the headship covering. Now, it'd be interesting. We're not going to do this. I'm not going to embarrass you or put you on the spot, but I would, lo- I would be very interested. I was thinking about this while I was studying for this message. For you to answer... Or how you answer people that ask you why you wear that on your that thing on your head. I'm going to leave that question with you, but and I'm not going to maybe directly answer it. But I hope that the whole scope of this message does clarify some of this. And um, there's various ways probably to answer that question. But I would like to say this morning. I'm going to say it probably at the end of the message too, Lord willing. But the, the whole idea of headship and the headship covering, I would like to say, is a sacred ordinance. And that somehow impressed itself upon me more so, again, in, in studying for this message, looking at the scriptures. And I think that we have been affected or tainted, as it were, by so many ideas that are contrary to this. I would like to... Um, Quote, this is from Corey Anderson's book called the, um, let's see, what was the title of that? It's on the head covering. But he says this, few New Testament teachings are as clearly taught and yet flatly refused by modern Western Christians as the, the woman's head covering. The title of the book is The Ornament of a Spirit. Very good book. Highly recommend it. Now, I've heard all kinds of explanations, and you probably have too, of why this doctrine does not need to be practiced. Literally, all kinds of ideas, from the most naive to absurd, of why this is not something that is a literal practice. Now, and some people can get pretty creative in trying to escape the reality of this teaching. It's not so much because of the head covering itself, but I believe it's because of the acceptance in God's order of headship. Now, in light of so many accusations against God's people in relation to various teachings, this one included, I think we need to remember some important things here. First of all, this teaching is not to imply, as some would try to make it appear that a woman is inferior to a man. The Bible does not indicate that whatsoever. 
That is misreading the scriptures. This, um, and neither does this teaching ever give man any right to abuse his leadership role. The standard that is set in the scriptures is very high. You know, we are to love our wife in a marriage relationship the same way that Christ loves the church. And so you, you set that in the context. It's, it's never right in any place of, of, of leadership to, um, to, to abuse that, that, that position or that responsibility. Leadership in the scriptures is always servant leadership. It's always a leadership that is given to be used on the behalf of others and not selfishly. In leadership, when it is used to put someone else down, to degrade someone, to abuse a position, that is not scriptural leadership. So we need to remember that. Neither does this teaching. It does not infer that Paul had a vendetta against women. Sometimes people will say that. But the scriptures are very clear. You read the last chapters of the book of Romans, and how often Paul commends the faithful women that minister to him alongside of him in the gospel. Um, if anything, I would say that Paul's teaching elevates and preserves the unique and special place of women in God's plan. The Bible teaches, and we'll look at the, these scriptures, shows us that the creation of a woman was special and unique from all other creation. Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 and verse 20. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam was there not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her to, unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. A woman is not inferior to man. A woman is not less intelligent than a man. A woman is not less capable than a man. But a woman is made unique for a role that God created. And we might come back to this a little bit later, but I'm going to touch on it now. You notice that Adam was created in the perfect way, but he did not have any help. That was meat for him among the, the, uh, the animal kingdom in verse 20. And so God took something from Adam as the perfect man. He took something from Adam and made woman as a counterpart to Adam. And therefore, in marriage, when two are joined together in the bonds of holy matrimony, as we say, those two parts are put back together together. 
in the one flesh aspect of of man and woman in, in a marriage. I think that's the principle there. We're not going to go into that probably further. Would you understand how that how God created that? That makes a woman unique from all other creation, um, and that is interesting. That is, it's a powerful argument in relation to this. And then with in salvation in Christ, as a recipient of God's grace, a woman is equal to man, not in responsibility, but in position in Christ. So therefore, like Paul says, there's neither male nor female. And we also know that in eternity, in the future, in the future world, there's neither male nor female. So it's back to that original singular entity, singular person, and, uh, and therefore, that distinction is not there. Now, I'd like to uh, take our thoughts now to 1 Corinthians 11 and read some of these verses. I wonder if somebody could get me a dry erase marker for the board here. I'm going to need one, please. All right, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 16. This is a familiar passage. Be followers of me, even I, as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonoreth his head, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head covered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman... Thank you. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the the man is, is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. (coughs) Judging yourselves, is it calmly that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. I would like now to think a little bit about this, these verses. And we're going to start off with um, verse 3, where we have the pattern of headship, which is the foundation in relation to, we're talking about the the head covering, which comes later, but the premise of it is the order of headship. And so he says here that I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So very simply, 
God, Christ, man, and woman. That's what he is saying there in verse 3. So that's the order of headship. Now, in thinking of this in relation to headship, we know that God is the Father of all. Christ, we know, submits himself to God, right? Jesus said in John 8, 29, I do always those things that please him. So Christ submitted himself to God. And we have because Christ is the head of man, man has the responsibility to submit himself to Christ. And then we also understand that um, because man is the head of the woman, the woman submits herself spiritually to man. And so you have that level or that role of headship. The um, man in the submission to Christ, we know that that's by choice, that's voluntary, not everybody does that. And everybody chooses that. But the, the issue is that at one point that will happen. Because like Philippians says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that is going to happen. Now, <clears throat> in the Christian sense, as the teaching of Scripture is, the woman has a responsibility to the spiritual submission to man. The... Um, <clears throat> Now you notice here that this means that there are three heads. In relation to the whole idea of headship, there's three heads. And that is, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now the principle of submission also is included in the concept of headship. So if there's there's a head... One, one above or one that has responsibility, therefore there's going to be submission. That's why we said Christ submits himself to God and so on. Now, I'd like to look at some other scriptures to think about this a little bit because it is interesting, interesting what happened in the fall. I'd like to go back to um, Genesis 3. We're just laying the foundation here of what the scripture teaches us on this. Genesis 3, and I don't think I'm going to read all of this. It's familiar to us. I'm just going to pick out some of these verses. We have the serpent coming on the scene in verse 1 and saying, Yea, hath God said, ye should not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye should not eat eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, uh, verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and so on. Uh, dropping down to um, uh, verse 9, the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And um, the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and 
above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thine seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow, and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be unto thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called the, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also, and to his wife, the Lord God, to make coats of skin and clothe them. We're going to stop there. <clears throat> we notice in, that, in this passage some interesting things as it relates to what happened in the fall in this relationship. Now verse 16 says, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, he shall rule over thee. I believe it means, there's various ways probably to interpret this, but I think it makes the most sense that there was now a God-given natural desire in the heart of every normal woman for the security and the protection of male leadership. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, he shall rule over thee. In other words, he shall have a spiritual responsibility. Now, um, because it's interesting, you go to verse 17 there, and, and God says, and he starts to judge Adam for his, his, uh, his fault in this. His, his culpability was, the first thing God said was, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife. See, isn't that interesting? And so, and you go, we're going to look at another scripture here in just a few minutes. That said, the woman was deceived. God was less harsh on Eve than he was on Adam. There's a reason for that. Because she was deceived. She, she thought it was the right thing to do. He did not step in and say, Eve, don't do that. He hearkened to the voice of his wife. Because the Bible says that Adam wasn't deceived. He went into that mistake. He went into that sin, that rebellion against God, with his eyes wide open. He knew he should not be doing it, but he didn't stop her. And when she said, this is good, he took up an eight too. And, and that's why... Adam carries the brunt of the, the sin of the sin upon the human race. All right, let's go. So, let's look at some other scriptures here. I'm just going to read them off my notes. You can turn to them if you care to, just for the sake of time. I'm going to. I'm just going to read them. You can listen as well. Ephesians five twenty two to twenty five is more in the context of a marriage relationship. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So there we have that aspect of a husband loving his wife the same way that Christ loves the church. Now, 1 Timothy 2, 
and verses 9 to 15, in, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Eve was, and Adam, sorry, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. I think the idea of being saved in childbearing is going to be saved through childbearing, because that's how the Messiah came to the world. So I think that ties in there with that, what that means. Um, but you notice there that it it. Um, it brings, forth, brings out that idea that Adam was not deceived. Like I said before, he went into that decision, eyes wide open, knowing that he was rebelling against God. Now, Titus 2, 3 to 5. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as become with holiness, not false accusers, not given too much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. One more. 1 Corinthians 14, um, 33 to 35, For God is not the author of confusion. In other words, God has a clear plan, purpose for all that he does. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the church, in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. This is the background now, the order of headship in relation to how God intended it to be. Now, secondly, the headship is also based on the order of creation. And we notice that. Um, we can saw that. We can go back now to 1 Corinthians 11 and verses 8 and 9. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Adam was created first. The woman was created from man. That's what that means. So the order of creation is also part of the whole um, aspect of headship. Man was created first, woman was created second. And we have that, I read that in 1 Timothy 2.13, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. So that is part of the order of the order of headship. There's also the distinction of creation. And um, <clears throat> the, um, we have that also in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And so there's that distinction in creation. Uh, Genesis 2 and verse 23 there, when Adam looked at Eve, his, his wife, and, and saw her, he said, well, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And um, that was his response. And, he, and then he gave her a name. He called her Eve because she was the mother of all living. And he recognized the significance of that. And so alike 
and yet uniquely different. What I find interesting is in today's world, the way the whole society has gone further and further into paganism, this whole thing of gender, the, the gender issue, and the confusion about that in some people's minds, it's astounding. It's, it's part of that um, drift away from God. And so in the creation, there was that distinction, alike, and yet uniquely different. Each created for a unique role to fill. And um, when Adam said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, it's my counterpart. It's, it, it's I was, in other words, he could have, Adam could have probably said, I was separated and something was taken from me and made into Eve, my wife. But then right away, the scripture says, for this cause should a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they become one flesh. to get put back together again into that one person, as it were. Now, there's also the, the witness of history, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's interesting in the scriptures, we see a little bit of this history. In Genesis 24 and verse 65 there, when Rebekah was traveling with, the, with Eliezer back to the land where Abraham and Isaac lived, it is interesting, she was riding the camels, and they came close to where Isaac was, and she saw him in the field. And she said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had, For the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. It's also interesting, and this will be a subject or study in itself, Numbers 5.18, where there God was giving the way in which if a woman was accused of adultery and there was a way in which the priest went through a ceremony or a, a procedure in order to prove whether or not she was lying, that one of the things that the priest did when she was there before the Lord was he took her veil off. It's interesting. Now, besides that, in relation to the witness of history, many old paintings clearly show you know, that the general practice of a head covering was, has been pretty well um, universal in the last 5,800 years, 5,900 years, whatever it is. Not only among God's people, but among the many cultures of the world. So what may seem today, for a lot of us, a lot of people, like basically an Anabaptist, practice. That's pretty well it's come down to basically Anabaptist people pretty well are the ones that have held this practice. Um, At one time it was not that way. And uh, I remember my short years as a boy, and I think I've said this before some of you, but uh, most of the Protestant churches in our area um when the women went to church, they had something on, they wore something on their head, and that's only 50, 60 years ago. Now, I want to look now at these verses more closely. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4, 
Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Now his head is not, it's not talking about his physical head. It's talking about his head, Christ. So if I wear something on my head, when I pray, preach, prophesy, whatever it is, when I do that as a religious symbol, I'm dishonoring Christ. Verse 5, if a woman does not cover her physical head, she dishonors her head, which is man. It's the opposite. Man is not to cover his head when he worships in the presence of Christ, and, but a woman is to cover her head. Because of verse 5, every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. Now, I'd like to drop down to verse 7 before I come back to this. For a man ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. So, we have three glories in this passage. One is that man is to glorify Christ, woman is to glorify man, and the glory of the woman is her long hair. Notice in verse um, 15, For if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Again, we'll come back to that one too. So we have the three glories here in relation to um, <clears throat> what, is, what is outlined. Man is the glory of God, and God does not veil his glory. If man is the glory of God, God does not veil his glory. His glory is to be seen. And, and, um, but, for, but the woman is the glory of the man, and mankind's glory is to be veiled in the presence of God. Because God is supreme. It is not man's glory in worship or in serving Christ. It is, it is God's glory. For a man to flaunt his glory in the presence of God, we can say from these verses, it would be as repulsive as a woman with a shaved head. And that's, what I, that's why it says here, if it's a shame, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her also be covered. And so for a man, like verse 7, a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the, in the, is the image of God and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. So we do not uh, flaunt our glory in the presence of God. But it's God's glory that is supreme. Now, in other words, that's re- repulsive to God. If we would flaunt our glory in his presence. So... A Christian woman will veil that glory in the presence of God, before God. Now, verse 6, it says, um, For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. If it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her also be covered. In other words, she may as well have no glory, be shorn or shaven, if she's going to flaunt that glory 
before God. Now, I'd like to go to verse 10. Well, I'm going to say one more thing in relation to the verse 6. I believe that the whole idea then of the, the veiling the glory of the long hair, that the glory of the long hair is to be reserved for the eyes of her husband. It's not to be exp- uh, flaunted or for others. Now, verse 10, it speaks here of another interesting thing. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. I believe this is referring probably to God's angels and to fallen angels. I think both. Because if you go to Ephesians 3 and verse 10, there it, it talks about, I don't have that in my notes here, but Ephesians 3 and verse 10 um, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. I believe what that is saying is that the church is on display to all the angelic hosts of heaven, and, and God has put us on display before them to reveal his wisdom. That, he said, to this intent might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now here it says that a Christian woman, in submission to her head, her spiritual head, and when she does this, she has power on her head because of the angels. You say, well, is that a physical protection? It could be. I believe it's more of a spiritual protection, for sure. I think there's times it is a physical protection, but it's not a guarantee. But it is a spiritual protection. And I believe what this means is that as a Christian woman veils her head, it is saying to the angelic hosts, whether fallen angels or God's angels, that she will stay in the position in that situation in a place where God has, has called her to be so that she will not repeat the same mistake that Eve made. Now, another interesting part of this, because remember, Adam listened to his wife. Eve was, you could say, almost out of place. But she thought it was a good idea, and Adam didn't stop her. But, but in that, in the in the is a veiled head is is telling the hosts of angels in heaven that I'm going to stay under the submission of my spiritual head that I do not make the same mistake that Eve did and be outside of that spiritual protection. The other thing that is interesting is man is not the salvation of woman. You know, some people teach that. That's, uh, the Bible does not teach that. A woman has, in Christ, has access to Christ in salvation, the grace of God, the same as a man does. Paul said there's neither male nor female in Christ, right? But in order for you as sisters to go to Christ, Praying or prophesying, it's all part of this headship here, is you put that veil on as a, as a 
as a to honor and say that I recognize that while I go directly to Christ for 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 spiritual life, grace and power, I am recognizing my head as man by doing that and wearing that veil. We pray to God through Christ. We talked about that a little bit this morning already. We pray to God through Jesus Christ. Woman does not pray to Christ through man, but the veil, wearing the veil, says that I recognize that I'm still in the spiritual submission aspect to my spiritual head, which is man, even though she goes directly to Christ for worship, strength, praise, prayer, all those things. Well, there's also the witness of nature. The scripture here talks about that. Now, in verse 14, doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame to him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. That's, a, I think, a general statement. Paul here is saying there's even the witness of nature. Man is naturally less able, capable of, of growing long hair than what a woman uh, is able to do. Again, a general statement. Now, some objections to this teaching. Is this a cultural teaching for the time of Corinth? We can go back to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, the beginning of this book where Paul says there what his ordinances that he delivered, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord. So what he was writing, he was not writing simply to the church at Corinth. Yes, he was addressing things there, various places in the book. But he's saying this is written to all in every place that call upon the name of the Lord. Those who argue that it's a cultural teaching, you know, they talk about, you know, the harlots went uncovered, and so therefore, you know, Paul wanted them to cover, so they identify with those. There's a lot of things that get, get thrown in there in relation to the whole cultural argument that this was just a local setting for Paul's day in for Corinth. Um, what is interesting is that ignores some very basic truths in this passage, like in verse 3. So is verse 3 cultural then too? If the head covering itself is cultural for Corinth, what about verse 3? But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Is that cultural? No. That's an established principle. So, um, the order of headship, it doesn't change with culture. This doesn't change with culture. This, this uh, supersedes all culture. So, I think that the whole idea of the cultural thing falls flat completely when you, when you look at it. And then also say like in verse 10, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Is that verse cultural? Is that just a cultural thing? No. That's related to the order of headship again. So that's not cultural. So it's really, an honest look at this scripture, it's impossible to say that this was just a cultural teaching for Paul's day or for Corinth. What about is the uh, question sometimes, um, another object, uh, objection to this, the hair is the covering. Um, 
Verse 15 is often quoted for this argument. If a woman have long hair, is it glory to her? For her hair is given her for a covering. Face value, you might say, well, that argument has a little bit of merit, but look a little deeper. Um, There's two different words here, Greek words used for the word covering. I'd just like to read this quote that I think explains it. Those who claim the hair is the only covering in view in this passage ignore that the word covering here comes from a different Greek word. The word translated covering in verse 15 is not katakalupto as in the earlier verses, but parabolion. And so when it says about her being covered, like in verses uh, 4, 5, 6, um, and so on, that word covering there is a totally different Greek word than what the Greek word that is used in verse 15 where it says her hair is given her for a covering. Um, if God considered the hair to be the veiling, we could right, rightfully expect this statement to read thus, her hair is given her for a catacalypto. But it doesn't say that. It says parabolion. And that word, the Greek word, means veil, mantle, or throw around. Or wrap around. And um, another thing to think about in relation to the argument that the hair is the covering is that it doesn't say earlier in relation to the hair, it doesn't say long hair, it simply says hair. And so it doesn't, there's that distinction, or not that, that distinction, I should say, between hair and long hair. Now, another question in relation to the hair being the covering is. Why does it dishonor man if she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered? If the hair is the covering, and it says that she dishonors her spiritual head, the man, if she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, why is that that the issue? Well, she is flaunting, like we talked about earlier, she is flaunting her glory of the long hair, which is the glory of man in the presence of God. And God says that that's repulsive to me. So if the hair is the covering, and and that is suffices for this scripture, if the long hair is the covering, then she has done nothing to cover her, her glory in the presence of God and man, you see. And that just pulls that whole argument to pieces, because the long hair can't be the covering. Because the issue of her going and praying and prophesying under the headship order, the long hair, the glory of the long hair is the issue. But she needs to cover that. Because going into the presence of God with the long hair being the covering is still the problem. That's the problem. You're, you're flaunting that. So in light of that, it, to me it makes it very clear. This passage is, is teaching that um, there's something else that is put on to cover the glory of the long hair. Now, Sometimes it is said, well, it should not be contentious, like it says in verse 16, so we just leave it. Some people take that approach. Or that it's um, not a, wasn't a custom. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. You look that up in the original language. Um, 
but it doesn't it doesn't give that rendering. The fact is that what it is saying there is that if any man seems to be contentious about this, this is the custom we have in all the churches. Why not cover all the hair? And I guess that would be okay. Muslims take that approach for different reasons, but they do that, some of them. I guess that would be okay, but the principle here is the covering the glory of the long hair. And the whole idea of that wraparound, I think, is from that word in verse 15. Her hair is given her for a wraparound. I'm going to say that literally. Um, What about the question that's only for public worship? I find it interesting, verse, if you go further down, in relation to the communion in 17, 18, 19, he talks about them coming together in the church. So, you know, in the first part of the chapter, nothing is really said about public assembly because it says praying or prophesying, it's assumed that that is referring to public worship. In fact, many Bibles have that, and it has a header in relation to public worship. But you really don't find public worship in the first um, 16 verses, 1 Corinthians 11. So what about the praying and prophesying? Because that's what it is referring to there. I believe Paul is using that as the illustration of what he's saying in relation to the whole headship thing. Um, we know that 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 5.17 says that we're to pray without, without ceasing. And um, also it's interesting that if you go back to 1 Corinthians 14, we looked at those verses that the women are to keep silence in the church. So why would he say here that she's supposed to cover her head when praying or prophesying in public assembly like it is assumed sometimes when chapter 14 says a woman is not to speak in the church? That'd be a total contradiction. I don't see the public aspect thing here in this passage. I believe Paul is using that as an illustration to explain the whole thing of the headship thing and and what the problem was in Corinth in relation to this. He's saying with the headship... um, so uh, that they were to um, they were to recognize the headship issue in relation to the to the to the covering teaching. Now another sometimes another um, argument is used isn't it just a symbol? So almost anything will do. There's no doubt that there's symbolism in this chapter. There's symbolism in the application of how it's how how we do it. That is that is true. But we have to remember that when, when a group of people sometimes, and I've seen this, I've heard these arguments, go down the road of saying, well, the covering is just a symbol. That's not true. While there's symbolism associated with it, the fact the Bible says she is to be covered. See? So if the symbol covers, that's fine. But a covering is a covering. It's the veiling of the glory of the long hair. And so it's not simply a symbol. So be careful in that. Sometimes people take that course. And it ends up with just some little thing that is supposed to be the symbol of it. But it's not the veiling of the glory of the long hair. Another argument sometimes is it's personal choice as to how it should be practiced. In other words, a church shouldn't really have any say in that. I think it was back to chapter or verse two. 
I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. Keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Ordinances there have the thought of traditions as well. So Paul is saying, I've delivered this to you. I've explained this to you. Uh, verse 16, it talks about, um, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. The context of this is set in, in the churches. So that's why we believe that the church decides the practice together. Um, and and that is um, the, way, the way God intended it to be. How can it be lost? A few thoughts in closing. By not living out the principles of submission, it represents. And I just want to encourage you as sisters in this, you know, how you talk about your husbands, you know, following his wishes, you know, when he's present or not present, all that has to do with the whole, di- whole idea of, of submission and respecting him as a spiritual leader. And also, it can be lost by the men not taking the loving place of leadership in the home and the church. And I would say to us as brethren, you know, we need to step up and we need to take you know our place in being a spiritual leader so we don't put our our sisters in, in an awkward position where they're not really supposed to, to lead out but the men if they if we are not leading out there's gonna be pressure on them and that's not fair and I would say in general over the years I would say that many times, when, when there was situations where maybe a woman was out of her place in various situations, it was just as much or more the fault of the brethren, the men, who were not taking their, their responsibility. So that, that's something that we need, to, we need to understand. Let's not put pressure on our sisters to be out of their place by failing to take our place as we should. I think another way it can be lost is by resisting the application the church has chosen and becoming careless and respecting a consistent practice. There's different ways that churches decide to follow this application. And, but the important thing is that it is, it is following the spirit and the principle of the scriptures. Experimentation with an ordinance can be dangerous. And I think that history has shown that, that they start to fiddle with it and, and you know, alter it a lot. You know, it can finally be the result of, uh, of, of losing it. We want to encourage you as sisters in your submission of heart and uh, before Almighty God to faithfully continue to fill your place in his kingdom. I know that I'm sure that at times you feel awkward in a society where it is less and less practiced. But I want to encourage you, it's a sacred privilege. You're on display to the angels, to God's angels, to heaven, of being in your place, the way God intended you to be. Don't be ashamed of it. Wear it with dignity. You're not wearing it for a watching world so much. Yes, the veiling the glory of the long hair. That is one of the reasons, but you're wearing it because of heaven's eyes on you. And you have power on your head, the Bible says, because of the angels. They are watching. They are taking notice. And with that is a tremendous, powerful witness and blessing 
to the world. As brethren, as we take our place, let's be sure that we are faithful in how we present ourselves in the world. Again, that we don't put a pressure on our sisters. That is not fair. If we can just blend into the world, like completely with almost no distinction whatsoever, is that fair? Are we supporting them? You know, it's questions that we ought to ask ourselves. It's a sacred privilege. You are a very powerful force for good in the life of your family, in your marriage, if you're married, and in the church as you fulfill the unique place that only you can fill. I want to thank each of you for your faithfulness in what you do. While many times probably unnoticed, but it is a unique power and blessing for the church. And I believe a properly veiled sisterhood of believers in a Christian church is a testimony and a witness of God's blessing upon the group. I'd like to close with a little, it's not really a poem, I guess, but a little saying, a quote. This uh, is unique, probably, a little bit, because it comes from some letters that my wife and I exchanged while we were recording uh, one of our discussions, I think. Creation of woman. She was made from the rib of man, not for, for not from his head to be superior to him, nor from his feet to be walked upon, but from his side to be close to him, beneath his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. May God bless each of you, each of us, in our respective responsibilities. And God will continue to bless us. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom. As you are a creator, God. And in your wisdom, you chose how each of us would function in the world. Under your blessing, your guidance. Father, we thank you for each of us. And what, how you have made us. And Father, we want to give ourselves wholly to you in our respective roles and responsibilities that your name would be glorified. We can receive your blessing upon us. We know, Father, the devil is always trying to subvert your cause, your kingdom. And so, Father, we just pray that you will continue to help us to understand and know your will. And Father, where there are so many are dropping the truths and doctrines of Scripture, help us to have courage and faith to continue and press onward. You can continue to bless us, bless the many in the world who are faithful to you today, endeavoring to live out the principles of Scripture. May your blessing rest upon each. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.